Recovery Elevator, episode 275. If what you're trying isn't working, it's not try harder. It's try different. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Belle. She's 53 years old, currently lives in Paris, France, and took her last drink on June 30th, 2012. She's been around the sobriety block for a minute, and she drops all kinds of value bombs. You're going to learn a lot during this interview, because I know I did. And before we go any further, let's hear from today's sponsor, Tiger Tail. Tiger Tail is an American-made premium dog gear company. Tiger Tail dog leashes and collars are odorless and waterproof, have an easy-to-operate clasp, and are backed by a lifetime warranty. I love Tiger Tail on a personal level, and so does my rock star sober sidekick standard poodle, Ben. He's wearing one of their teal urban nomad collars right now, and damn, he looks good. Matt, one of the co-founders of Tiger Tail, who is also in recovery and a podcast listener, reached out to me asking if I'd be interested in trying out their products, and I'm glad I did. Tiger Tail has three different styles of luxury, vegan-friendly leashes. I've used all of their leashes, and personally, I like the Urban Nomad leash the best. It's perfect for when Ben and I head off into the mountains. I love Tiger Tail's mission too. One of the positive things I've discovered during COVID is that animal shelters are nearly empty. Instead of isolating, people are adopting dogs and getting outside. That's where Tiger Tail comes in. 1% of all their revenue supports dog shelters. And right now, Recovery Elevator listeners receive 15% off any Tiger Tail order on Amazon by using the promo code ELEVATOR15. Just go to amazon.com forward slash tiger tail dog. Again, that's amazon.com forward slash tiger tail dog to explore the perfect leash for you and your furry friend. It's the last dog leash you're ever going to buy. And don't forget to use the promo code elevator 15 elevator one five. Last Tuesday, we started our first ever course in Cafe RE titled Ditching the Booze, the What, the Why, and the How. And I got several emails from people asking if we're going to offer this course again this year. And good news, yeah, we've got two more dates. We're going to start August 4th and November 3rd. Also, what we're getting on the books, drum roll, um, another alcohol-free sober travel itinerary. We're, uh, we're putting Costa Rica back on late this year or early 2021. Stay tuned. But if you want to get even more pumped about this trip, go to recoveryelevator.com and go to events and you can see the full itinerary. Guys, this one is going to be a special trip. Okay, let's get started. Since today's interview with Bell is a bit longer than usual, I'm going to keep my segment a little shorter, but I know we'll have some heads nodding. We had a webinar the other night in Cafe RE, and a gentleman named Alan said something that really hit home. He said the drink in his hand was never enough. He recalled times at bars when he would order a drink, take a couple steps away from the bar, have a few sips, realize he'd need another one ASAP despite having a near full beverage in his hand, and he'd get right back in line. Is that hitting home with anybody? You dig? Is that just me? I think I see a couple heads nodding out there. So there's a couple points I want to make here. The first, if you're nodding your head saying, yep, I've done that, and I know I did, you might need to ditch the booze. And here's why. Your visit to the bar with friends, to the restaurant, to the pub, 
the speakeasy, saloon, parlor, canteen, supper club, bodega, yacht club, cocktail lounge, tap room, tavern inn, ale house, watering hole, gin mill, bar room, beer garden, drinking establishment. Whoa, that was a lot. Well, those visits are all secondary to consuming alcohol. In other words, your primary goal in visiting those places with low vibrational frequencies isn't to socialize or to connect with friends, but to get your buzz on, to get drunk, especially after you take that first sip. In your mind, you envision returning to your table with that first drink in your hands, enjoying it over conversation with friends, and then everyone orders the second round together in unison. But what really ends up happening is when you take that first drink, as in the minute you take that first sip, the unconscious puts you back in the queue. And some of you have even stopped the tomfoolery and you order two drinks at a time, or maybe three. Okay, let's say this podcast episode title one more time. The drink in my hand was never enough. Perhaps the most insidious part of that statement are the last two words. Never enough. And I hate to break it to you, but the drink in your hand will never be enough. Alcohol promises the sky, then takes away your wings. It happens every time. And ah, there is a recovery cliche that is so applicable here. Do I do it? Yeah, I think I do. Here we go. One drink is too many, and a thousand is never enough. We seek to fill an inner void with an external falsely advertised magical liquid elixir called alcohol that will never be enough. Never be enough, and that's a fact. Now, the most important point I want to make today is where this journey, an alcohol-free life, will eventually lead you if you stick with it long enough. Now, sure, it may lead you to your dream vacation, new job, new loved ones, new passions, new hobbies, and new life directions. But without a doubt, the most important place this journey will take you is an internal knowing, a feeling that you have enough that you are enough, that nothing else needs to change for you to be okay, for you to be happy, for you to feel joy because you have enough. And once you have enough, all you care about is making sure others have enough as well. Listeners, today I have something I didn't have before, and that's enough. I might make a million dollars one day doing Recovery Elevator, but that payment is peanuts compared to knowing that you got the message that you also have enough, that you are enough. Now, before we hear from Bell, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. When departing from alcohol, here are the two main keys to success. You need a supportive, loving community, and you have to create accountability with others who have the same goal in mind. Whether you want to ditch the booze for a month, a year, or simply sober curious, You'll get both of these in Cafe RE. These groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who is in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19 a month, you get access to the community, get paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online discussions, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of monthly fees goes towards our service project where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction, and another portion goes to the in-person meetups. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. 
Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Bell, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Bell, sounds good. I'm excited to learn more about you. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right into this, Bell. When was your last drink? 30th of June, 2012. June 30th, 2012. We're coming up on eight years away from alcohol. I'm excited when I get to interview someone who's been doing this journey, walking this walk longer than me, because I've got my pen ready. I got my notepad open. Bell, this is also part of my journey. My departure from alcohol is learning from people just like you. And it, it's, it's, it's fantastic. You got this much time away from alcohol, but I also learned there's value bombs and things that I didn't think about new insight from people I interview. Um, for right. example, the gal, the guy yesterday, let me check. Um, Jeff. Yeah. So it's 65 days. Um, I, I learned so much from everybody. So I'm excited to do this one. Um, yeah, let's get into this bell. Give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family and what do you like to do for fun? <laughs> well, I'm a caterer. I'm originally from Canada and I live in Paris, France. I married a French Canadian who doesn't speak English. And so we speak French together and we wanted to leave Canada where it was wintry. And so we came to France and that was 11 years ago. Of course, like most people, we came for one year, quote unquote, and it's 11 years later. But people are often surprised to find out that I quit drinking in Paris because everybody thinks somehow that, you know, Paris is this magical place where you must overconsume forever. But it turns out it is possible to be so. We are sold that wine and cheese is contemporaneous in Paris. Is, is that something you see? Uh, it's actually surprising how little people drink here and a kind of politeness that no one would ever ask you why you weren't drinking. So if you are at a dinner event and you say, no, thank you, I'll have water, no one, I mean, really, no one who just met you would ever ask. It's Whereas in the United States, somebody might say, oh, really, you don't drink? In France, it's we're much more formal to begin. So that kind of question just never comes up. Really? Do you think you say it's much more formal to begin? Is it something that they don't want to pry or something that they just don't care about? No, it's don't want to pry. You don't talk about very personal things. Like in the U.S., you might say, what do you do for a living? And in France, that would be too forward to start. That's sort of like saying, how much money do you earn on date one? Like there's there's sort of like a, a sort of a distance to begin. But then, of course, once people know each other, they're as friendly as anybody else. But I don't always follow those rules very carefully because I'm a Canadian living in France. And so every so often I'll walk right into it and say, so how long have you been speaking English? Well, really, sure. where'd you go to school? What did you do? What did your husband do? Which is not the way. Um, but it means, though, that the number of times that I have to explain that I don't drink or why I don't drink here is actually very, very few, very infrequently. So I imagine the if people don't want to pry then on the other side people aren't opening up about it is the recovery scene out there in paris or in france or maybe europe in general is it more more anonymous more secluded i actually don't have lots of subscribers or contact with people in france because all of my stuff is in english so most of the people who i come in contact with are uk and american australia canada I have like maybe 15 subscribers from Germany. I have a website, which when I talk about subscribers, I just mean there's people signed up on my, for my stuff. Germany, for whatever reason. But you'd have to speak English and like my sense of humor or my, you know, potty mouth to, to sign up and stay signed up for my stuff. So uh, I've got maybe half a dozen people from France. I don't gotcha. know specifically what's happening, uh, except that the kind of over drinking that you might see 
if you went to London, which we do from here relatively often, or if you went to Tennessee, or if you went to Seattle, you don't see that kind of overdrinking here. We don't have a pub culture. People don't overconsume and then drink outside like you might see in London. People smoke a lot more in France. So you see people outside of pubs, but they're smoking. The, the sort of drunk and disorderly, which I'm saying with quotation marks, is much less prevalent here. That doesn't mean that people aren't drinking. It just means that it's not socially acceptable to be hammered outside of your home. Sure. And when I owned the bar in Spain from 2000, about 2005 to 2008, the, the drunken public people, the people that made asses out of themselves were Americans. Were tourists. Yep. Yeah, Americans, yep. UK. Yep. <laughs> God, British people That's drink right. hard. And then foreigners, right? Very exactly rarely right. did I have to kick a Spaniard out of my bar. So they drink. They drink a yep. lot. In fact, there's an there's a article I came across a couple of years ago that people in the Western European countries, especially in the Mediterranean, they drink more per capita than Russians, than people up north. However, why the rates of alcoholism are way higher up in Russia and those Scandinavian countries is because of binge drinking. And the results when we binge drink, that's when the liver creates uh, THIQs, tetrahydroisokinolines, I think, that are deposited in the brain. And it's the THIQs which are responsible for the, the on and off switch. So it makes it harder to stop once you start. It's, yeah, it's cool. Just, well, it's cool, but it's, it's fascinating the difference uh, across the globe. And I, I know we're all moving forward in one direction of, of we're all starting to wake up and recognize what role alcohol is sure. playing in our life. And, and you've got a, cool, a really cool project uh, that we're going to talk about later on in the interview. Well, but certainly since I quit drinking too, like if you think about eight years ago, there, were, there, there wasn't club soda. There wasn't uh, sober curious. You, you went to rehab or you went to AA eight years ago. There was one Yahoo group called Booze Free Brigade, which is now a Facebook group. But there was a Yahoo. I mean, like listserv. I mean, it was there was nothing. There was nothing. And then there was WordPress blogs, which, again, don't even really exist now. Yeah. Uh, and, like and everyone would use Facebook or Instagram, right? Yeah. And listeners, Yahoo was a search engine. Now it's relevant to me because of fantasy football. <laughs> oh. And, you know, they have like sports coverage. <laughs> exactly. They're sort of more sportsy. Yeah. Now. But there was a time, there really was a time eight years ago where this was not happening. And it was very difficult to raise your hand and say, I think I have a problem with overdrinking, but in my case, I'm not an alcoholic, but I'm overdrinking and I know this isn't trending well. And so this whole idea of gray area drinking or what we call high bottom drinking there was nothing. There were no books. There was no buddy in television who was like me. There was there was AA and rehab. And then, like like after years of over drinking and knowing that I was drinking more than I wanted to, but I never met the magic criteria of you know alcoholic quote unquote. Finally, 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 I found a sober blog and saw that there was one other person on the planet who'd quit drinking who had a high bottom. And I thought, okay, maybe maybe this is something I could actually try. So these are the best times ever to quit drinking. Oh, Gone are the now? days of cigarettes, donuts, basements, poorly lit rooms, um, AA and rehab. You're right. And that's when I first started this journey, probably you know, 15 years ago. I was like, uh-oh, I have a major problem on my hands. The options were limited, but now we're leveraging technology more than ever, uh, and it's incredible. And we're going to talk about later on in this interview, I want to I share your story with listeners first, but um, we're going to talk about how there is no right or wrong way to do all of this. 
including the work that you're doing. And before we hit the record, Bell and I were on the on the on the phone on the call together. We're like, I don't. We almost didn't do this interview in a in a fun way. Uh, I will talk about that later. Yeah, it was hilarious. Yeah, it, it was, kind of it was. was. It was hilarious. It was almost like we we were like in our like, egoic. You want what? No, I don't do that. Well, you don't do this. Well, I don't do that. Well, I don't yeah, do this. Well, we, I'm not like that. Well, you're not like that. It's like that, okay. That's how it went. We were like in our corners, and I'm like, Bell, I, I don't think we can do this interview. And you're like, Yeah, I don't think I can either. Well, do we hang up? Like, well, I think we do. <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, it, and that's how it goes. And and then I recognize I'm like, wait a second. If I want to be authentic to my message, there 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 is no one way to quit drinking, and there's no one way to be of service. So um, I think we both were like, all right, let's just go ahead and do this. So I'm excited to share it. But before we get so to that, so far component, so good. <laughs> yeah, at nine minutes, um, we're we're still. Are we friends right now, Bell? Are we so cool? So far, we're okay. So far, we're good. We're cool. I'm doing like the virtual handshake right now on the oh, the no. Skype screen. All right, Bell. Give listeners. You know what? Back it up. One question about hmm. soup. The best cup of soup I've ever had, and maybe it was environmental, was a cup of French onion soup at the bottom of the Eiffel Tower in 2003. Tell me, why is French onion soup so good in Paris? Uh, that would be situational exhaustion, dehydration, and fantasy of France. I doubt the soup was very good. I bet if you went back again, you wouldn't find it to be that great. That said, French onion soup is great here. It really is. But it's the cheese, and then it's the bread, and it's the way they make it, and a lot of it is homemade. But I don't know about you, but I've had some like really great meals in restaurants and then tried to go back and recreate it, and it's sucky. And then I think, well, it's the same macaroni and cheese that I had the last time I was here. Why was it so magical last time? And I think sometimes it's situational. We were in a good mood. The light was right. It was special. It was novel. But then when you try to recreate it, everybody has had this experience. You try to recreate that magic moment. It's actually just like drinking. You try to get that warm feeling of the first glass, except it never comes. And then you're disappointed that you've got this memory and you're longing for something that was like a one-time event. Like, did you really have instant French onion? Like, who does that? You had instant French onion soup no. at the bottom of the Eiffel Tower? Well, it was a sit-down restaurant. It was about oh. f- about 65 degrees. It oh, was a late a spring day. and But that's a question I've been I've been asking myself for the past. Is it the restaurant si- on the first floor of the Eiffel Tower or on no, the ground? No, uh, but I've been asking myself that question for 17 years. I'm like, why was that French onion soup so good? And you just answered it. You just vacation. knocked it out of the park. Yeah, you so, were on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> yep, situational. I was visiting a gal. Oh, wow. Okay. We can. That's my answer. <laughs> I doubt it was the soup. That's I'm sorry to say. Hang on, listeners. I got to write down our answer to that question real quick on my notepad. This is big stuff already. Value bombs personally are being dropped for me. Uh, okay. Here we go, Bell. Give listeners background about your drinking. When did you first recognize that it was a problem? Did you attempt to moderate? Um, did you have a rock bottom moment? So I understand you quit drinking um, or almost eight years ago. Get us up to speed. Right. I'm excited to hear your story. So I was somebody who, like in my 20s, 21, 22, realized that alcohol spoke to me, that it actually had a voice, that it said, drink me, drink now. And I thought everybody had the same voice. So I thought I was very clever and I would go to the liquor store, which is what we call it in Canada, and I would buy two beers and bring them home, not six. And I thought that that was very clever because it meant that I wouldn't overdrink. I would just buy what I knew I could consume that day. What I didn't realize was that normal drinkers don't have to behave like this. Number one, alcohol doesn't speak to them. And number two, they can have alcohol in the house and not feel compelled to drink it, whereas I felt compelled to drink it. 
so you know i went from one beer a night to two beers a night to graduated to wine to probably about year 2000 so i would have been 36 and then i was you know having three drinks a night and it didn't seem cataclysmically bad but i found it just about impossible to skip a day so my attempts to moderate meant doing things like showing up at an event with two drinks and two zero uh, percent beers and alternating and again doing this in front of people thinking somehow that i wasn't clearly broadcasting that i had a drinking issue i was it was just like oh i bring zero percent beer to events so that way i don't drink so much like the penny didn't drop for for me for a long time that that wasn't exactly a great sign sure real quick bell so you mentioned at 36 you were having about three glasses of wine per night now, was it simply recognizing with awareness that, hang on, I, I do this every night, there are no gaps in this, that you said this might be an issue, or were there some external circumstances that happened, some repercussions? There weren't, actually. That's the thing. It was that I couldn't keep a promise to myself. Oh, okay. It was that I could write it in my day book day after day, drink only on special occasions, have one drink and then stop, drink only four nights a week. So my attempts to moderate, and I didn't call it moderating. So whenever somebody asks me, did you moderate? I didn't use that language, which can sometimes make people stumble because they think, oh, wait a minute. I'm trying to quit drinking, but I never tried moderating. I'm like, yes, you did. You just didn't call it moderating. What you called it was alternating every second drink with water, drinking only on special occasions or weekends. But you and I both know that when we plan to drink only on weekends, it starts on Thursday and ends on Wednesday. Like, wow. that's the weekend. So they're almost unconscious moderation techniques to prolong the external substance that's making us feel good internally. I love how you said that. I've never thought about that. I'm so glad we're doing this interview, Bill. <laughs> So I, I knew that I drank more than I wanted to, and I knew that I found it difficult to skip days. Then I got married in 2005, so I was 39, and then, and, and I had never lived with anybody, and I'd never been married, so I was old, quote unquote. But I had now a partner in crime. So that meant that I could buy two bottles of wine for dinner, and we would sit down and drink a bottle and a half together. Again, three classes, not a, not a big metric ton of alcohol but it was every night and if we bought one bottle trying to like just have one and we ran out husband would go out in the snow to get more like if you ever leave your house at 11 p.m to get more alcohol it's a sign because you never leave your house at 11 p.m to go get more corn on the cob like never not one time but alcohol would say to me you need more you had one how about another one well you got to get up tomorrow okay well then just one more Bill, that could be one of the best you might have a drinking problem test ever. If you leave the house, say from like 11 p.m. to 11 a.m. to go buy alcohol, which I did several times in those hours, you probably have a drinking problem. Well, and nobody would call it that, right? They would say, no, no, it's just that I ran out. And then I would say, are, are you worried about running out of alcohol so much so that you have an extra stock or you think about, is there enough? That's a sign. Like I had a moment after I'd quit drinking where I was in a hotel that had one of those dumb little mini bars. And it had, you know, two chocolate bars and a can of Coke and a tiny bottle of this and a tiny can of that. And I opened the fridge and looked at it and I said, well, I can't relapse today because there's not enough. So I, like when I saw two little dinky cans of something, it's like, I'm not going to relapse for that. There's if no I'm going to relapse, I want to have the whole... As much as I said, I just like to, I like the taste of all the crappy things that people say. I like the taste of wine. I like wine with my dinner, all that nonsense. It 
it turned out that I never wanted one glass. I didn't see the point in one glass. One glass made me feel tired or headachy. And then it opened up this funnel of where's more? How can I get more? When is there more? So for me, the, the point at which I decided I wanted to do something was tired of thinking about drinking. It was the thinking of, is there more? Can I have more? I wasn't specifically having repercussions from drinking, but I'm really lucky and there's alcoholism in my family and I have a 39-year-old first cousin who died from this. So I'm not stupid and I knew how it was going. It was not going in a good direction. But did I personally have consequences at that exact second? No. But what I thought I'd do is quit for a month just to prove I didn't have a problem. And I tried that a couple months before I actually quit. So it was like March of the 2012. I tried to quit for a month and I got like seven days. So you recognized in the mid-2000s that your mental bandwidth was completely consumed uh, just thinking about drinking. Uh, I'm not sure that I knew it on a conscious level. Again, I thought it was sort of normal. Mm. I, I, I mean, I had a story with me and my husband and his friend and her and his wife. We were out, two couples out for dinner, get up from the dinner table to cross the street to buy more wine so that there's wine to take home because the store was going to close while we were sitting at dinner. I mean, that's not regular behavior. But the girl, like the other girl of the, uh, the couple, came with me and bought hers. So it didn't seem so wacky out of place. It wasn't until later on when I started to hang out in the sober world and you hear other people's stories that you realize that just about everybody has a version of a story. Like, did you ever go out at 11 o'clock at night? I went out many times and even at 6 (laughs) a.m. in the morning to go buy booze. Yes. Right. So, but, but it's not something we talk about like on a normal, you don't go to a rugby event and talk about, you know, making sure you had enough booze in the house. It's just sort of something that we did. And I'm not sure that I examined it so carefully, except that I knew that I was finding it difficult to skip days. Mm. And so if you fast forward to 2012, I decided that I wanted to quit for a month to prove that I didn't have a problem. I got about seven days in. That was in March of that year. And then I thought, wait a minute, this is actually harder to quit than I thought. Mm. What was that feeling like? Can you drill into that feeling for a moment? Uh, It was embarrassing because there was no one to talk about it with. There was no one to tell. Uh, I wasn't going to walk into an AA meeting at that juncture of my life. I was a high bottom drinker with no repercussions. I didn't associate with being an alcoholic. Again, I know these things sound like justifications. I'm telling you where my head was at that point. If I had continued to relapse and I'd had a lower bottom, I would have had to go to AA. Like there wouldn't have been any choice because there wasn't really any other option. But I was in this really bad, stuck place of thinking that I lacked self-discipline, thinking that I lacked willpower thinking that I lacked a click, all the things that people wait for. I thought I needed to quit on the right day. If I quit maybe the first of the month, that would make it easier. All this just like mental gymnastics was so, I mean, in retrospect, it's so exhausting. So we roll around, it's June of 2012, we're on vacation. I drank every single day except for one on that vacation. And on the one day that I didn't drink, I nearly died in a car accident, which is a separate story, but I was actually sober and didn't die. Wow. Had I been drinking, I don't, I don't even know. <clears throat> yeah, that could be some divine intervention there. Well, I actually wrote about it later and I wrote a book about quitting drinking and I put that story in there because it, it was like a big warning sign, but I still kept drinking for the next week. Like I, it's not like it was, it wasn't the end, but it was very close. Let me just throw that out there again. You, you drink every single day in June or every day on that vacation, except yep. one day that one day you get into a car accident. Had you have been drinking, the outcome would have been probably catastrophic 
let's just throw oh, that out sure. there. We don't need to put any more narrative to that. That's pretty crazy. I, I was coming down a ramp. There was, and in fact, I didn't have a car accident. I had a like a near miss at 100 kilometers an hour, so 60 miles an hour, by about three inches with an 18-wheeler coming down a hill. And I stopped like just in time, so much so that the wind like sucked my car back and forth. Mm. So, and it was dark, and I was in a city that I wasn't familiar with, and I was sober. You, like me, and all the listeners are supported. Okay, keep going. So, that, I don't know what day that was, but I finished my vacation. I got back to Paris, and I thought, okay, that's, you know, really, I want to do this month again. And I heard about something called Dry July, which is a fundraiser for cancer in Australia. I didn't sign up for it. I just heard the date. If you're Canadian, July 1st is Canada Day. That's like the July 4th of the United States. So I thought, okay, that's a good day. I'll do dry July. So again, in my I don't tell anybody. In my head, I just go, that's it. I'm quitting for a month. And by day nine, I knew I was fucked. Like I knew that I couldn't, I, I knew again that I wasn't going to be able to do it. And then it's like, okay, this is like major. I can't even quit when it's dry July after I just had that month. So then I went online and found this, the sober blog that, that I had been like, like, like lurking around. And I started my own WordPress blog so that I could anonymously talk about what was happening to me. And within 24 hours, somebody had answered. I mean, it's hard to explain now, except that there was a time where when you had a WordPress blog, you were notified when other people posted on the WordPress platform and used the same keywords. So anyone else who was blogging or following sober blogs got notified. I didn't know that. So when I get up in the morning, there were like four people who po who commented. And I'm like, wait a minute, where'd y'all come from? Like, What was your but, feeling when you saw there were comments? Oh, it was like, I'm not alone. Hmm. Like there's actually other people out there in this gray area, high bottom, whatever you want to call it. Know that they're drinking too much. Listeners, I, I want to comment on the power of being accountable and burning the ships is what we call it on this podcast. So I'm looking at uh, Bell's project right now. It says, the day I started this blog, my day nine, I wrote, I want to put this online to hold myself accountable. I want to document the noise in my head. I'm tired of thinking about drinking. So Bell, I know a thing or two about creating accountability online. It was a risky endeavor for me. My first episode came out about four and a half, maybe five and a half months on February 25th, 2015. My, my alcohol free date is September 7th, 2014. You're doing this day nine, right? It's a risky endeavor. It's, it's, it's out there for almost everybody to a, see you kick ass in life without alcohol or B crash and burn. Those are all just narratives and stories that people are going to apply to this. But the point I'm trying to drive down here is the power of burning the ships. You put the energy inside of you with keystrokes out in the interwebs for people to see you're helping yourself while you're helping them. And, and, and then I imagine after that, your accountability, like you recognize you couldn't go back. I had no sense, though, that I was helping anybody to be very fair. I was simply saving myself. There was no expectation. First of all, I didn't know if there was anybody else like me. It would have shocked me to think that there was a similar trajectory, which I now know eight years later. But at the time, I would have been embarrassed to think that anybody was inspired by my nonsense, really, because I was doing a lot of whining and I was doing a lot of, oh my God, this is really hard. And I was doing a lot of maybe I'll drink tomorrow and you know, being talked off the ledge by people who had more sober days than me. So, you know, all of those things were happening, but I didn't think, I didn't think that would ever 
help anybody. At the time, there was maybe 15 or 20 regular bloggers. There were some other people who came and went, but there was, you know, 15 or 20 of us. And we would comment on each other's blogs. And there were a couple of strangers who'd comment. And we all, you know, would like invent a screen name and post. And sometimes people would relapse and come back with a different name. You know, it was a bit of that. I'm going to forward, just fast forward slightly and we can go back if you want. But at about eight months sober, there was one girl who was just relapsing every three days. And she kept saying, I'm going to quit forever, uh, but forever's going to start tomorrow. And I emailed her privately and I said, look, if you're having a really hard time, why don't you just try to quit for like, I don't know, like a hundred days, just as a, like an experiment, because it seems like a hundred, like a forever is too long. Why don't you try something shorter? And then she posts on her blog, I'm doing Bell's hundred day sober challenge. And I'm like, oh no, you're not. Cause there isn't, no, 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 you're not. Cause there isn't one. And then someone else emailed me, but they weren't one of the 15 core bloggers. There's some random stranger emails me and says, can I do your challenge? And I'm like, who the fuck are you? Like, because I had no idea that there were lurkers, that there were people reading, but not commenting that were too nervous even to comment on a blog. They didn't feel safe even to comment anonymously, but they could email me. They could create a Gmail account and email a stranger because you can't see them and you feel safe. And so it, when it first started, there were like 10 people and then there were 20. And when I got to 100, I said to my husband, you know, we get to 100 people doing the 100 day sober challenge, I'll have to close it down. And as of yesterday, I started working with pen pal number 3,133. Bell, I'm so That's glad. That's the short we, version of the story. Uh, Bell, I'm so glad we set aside our differences and we, we move forward with this interview because you basically paved the, the way for so many bloggers, including myself. And I, I could have said everything you said. I selfishly started the Recovery Elevator podcast. I say it in my book. I've said it s s several times to save myself. And I didn't think anybody would listen. I didn't care who listened. And let me tell you the two words that I said when I got my first email. So upload the first podcast and it's crickets for like three to four weeks. And then all of a sudden I get an email and I said, oh, fuck. And I didn't even open up the email for another two weeks. I, and I'm not really know why I thought it was going to be criticism of like, oh, you loser. Like, how can you just not quit drinking? But it was the opposite bell. Somebody emailed and was like, wow, I thought I was the only one out there with a drinking problem. Keep up the, the good work or what? I don't remember exactly what it said. And then a couple months later, or maybe later on down the road, someone's like, hey, can you create a community? Can we do like a Facebook group here? And that right. was how Cafe RE started. And it sounds like it's the same thing with you. The listener oh, yeah. or the yeah, reader right. is saying, I'm going to do a hundred day challenge. You're like, what? And then somebody else is like, sign me up. Yeah. They tell you where to go. Yeah, there's no way that you can approach this from an entrepreneurial mindset of I'm going to walk into the recovery space and create something and then people will pay me. Number one, it's not authentic. Number two, I couldn't ever have called myself a sober coach had I not have worked with people. And in fact, I didn't even, this is, I mean, this is embarrassing now because from a business point of view, this is ridiculous. I didn't charge people anything to be a pen pal and reply to daily emails, including weekends for the first 2,100 pen pals. Wow. So it was like at pen pal 2,100 and I don't, know, I don't know the exact number where I thought, okay, you know what? Like it'll have to start off where you have to like pay some token amount of money because then it sorted out also the people who were stopping and starting who weren't actually committed. Cause you know, when it's all free and it's the internet and it's anonymous, some people just walk in and then turn around and walk right back out again. So it did create a tiny little like stop point where you say, okay, do I actually want this? And I really do think that when I started, 
I mean, it wasn't actually paying for the pen paling, but I think the very first thing I had for, for sale was like $39, which again, it's just sort of, cause it was, I didn't, I didn't think this is the truth. I didn't think that pen paling actually would help anybody. I didn't understand what I was doing. People told me it was helpful, but I didn't understand that actually just having somebody say you're doing a good job or this is really hard or keep going or I want to check what day you're on or hi, Christy, are you on day 150 or Lucy, I haven't heard from you this week. How are you doing? I, I, I was doing it like I donated all of that time, but it was years of it, right? Because no. it helped me to be sober. It was my sobriety insurance. Sure. And Bell, there's a group of people in this space that expect you, me, and everybody else to do this for free, which is fine. But on the, on the flip side, if you do, if somebody, if a listener wants to enter this space and make a career out of it, not a problem as well. But the key there is you got to play the long game. Like you said, over a thousand pen pals for free. I didn't see a penny. 2000. Oh, 2000. 2000. I, I didn't see a penny until after a hundred and so weeks of doing the podcast. And then if you were to count my time for the previous hundred weeks, I don't sure. think I you know, put a value in my time. I didn't, maybe I still haven't seen a penny, but we both agree. I think we both can agree that I've gotten out of this financially aside way more than I've put into this. Sure. For sure. And I know for me, it was my insurance. Like it was my sobriety insurance from that eight and a half month point where I started to be pen pals with mystery girl, the girl who announced it on her blog, that one girl created for me a situation where I felt then that I couldn't relapse. Bell, there's another four words that I said, or two words what I said, oh, fuck, I can't drink again. Have you ever, no. did you ever say that on this project? Like, oh, fuck, I can never drink again. Uh, actually, I don't say that because I don't say never because I find that lots of people have a real hard barrier with never and always and all of the very drinking black and white language. So what I say is I'm going to drink at some point in the future, like when I'm 75, but not now because I have too much to do mm. and I move it over there. Now to begin, it's don't drink for a hundred days. And then when you get to 100 days, it's 180. And then when you get to 180, it's 365. So I actually approach this as a trial because it's easier to get people to start. It's a lower barrier to entry. If I want you to start to quit drinking forever, then you'll pick Monday. And if I say I want you to not drink for three days, you'll start today. And if I want you to not drink for 100 days, you'll start on you know the, the weekend. But if the barrier to entry is too large, well, this is also why 80% of what I do is free still, because people have to get to know you before they're going to spend 10 cents. And people need lots and lots of time to actually decide that they're ready to quit. And so, um, you know, I do free audios and I send out daily emails and I do live radio shows and I send stuff in the mail all for free because it, t because it reaches people, because it touches people, because I hear that back from them. But I didn't know any of that. I only knew that when I mailed something, somebody sent me a note and said, thank you. That really meant something. And I'm like, really? I'm just some girl in France sending you, I don't know, a bracelet in the mail. Belt. And let me, I got a question for you, but before I ask that, when I say, oh fuck, I can't drink again, it was about a year ago, I want to, it had some spiritual underpinnings to that. I, it was almost like I was smiling and laughing like, oh shit, I can never drink again. And sure I can, I, that never is a long word. Ben Harper has a song called Forever is a really long time, but right. I was able to zoom out and recognize Recovery Elevator has been one of the best teachers my unconscious, my conscious, my heart and soul could have created. It has, I have learned so much. I'm learning from you right now. I've learned so much from this project. And I imagine, and you guys as tired of thinking about drinking.com. I imagine your blog has been one of the most profound teachers for you. 
What are some of the profound insights or lessons that you've learned while, while doing this project? Certainly everything I've learned, I've learned from my pen pals, like from the people who communicate with me. Probably one of the biggest things that I learned, like when I was telling you my story about high bottom or gray area drinking or three glasses a night or two glasses a night or whatever my story was, I wrote my story. I thought the only people who would be interested then in following me or anything I had to say was people who had the same story as me. What I didn't realize was that, was that the core experience of quitting drinking is the same, regardless of the quantities. I would never have known that had I not lived through having someone email me and tell me, I drank two bottles a night, not two glasses a night, and your stuff to help me quit. And I'm like, well, that shouldn't work. And then somebody else would email me from rehab asking to set up an additional level of accountability in addition to their outpatient treatment, in addition to their AA, in addition to their sponsor. They still wanted a sober coach. And they would contact me and ask me what I work with them when they get out of rehab. And again, I'm thinking, okay, I'm not qualified for this. Except that I just do the exact same thing with everybody. Listen, offer suggestions, cheerlead, you know, brain, uh, brainstorm on stuff that might work, provide accountability. So if there's a guy who's had three DUIs in my group, which there is, he works right alongside the psychiatrist who's in my group, which there is. And if you think it's hard to go to AA, then try being a psychiatrist and referring all your clients there. And then try to find actual anonymous support in the world. It's hard. Like, it's hard to find actual anonymous support if you're a pilot or a psychiatrist or a judge. And those are people in my group. But in addition, if you're um, a mom who has three children under the age of 12 who are on the autism spectrum, all three kids, you're not going to meetings either. You don't have, you don't have time. You can't get a sitter. And Bell, with the work that you do, what are some of the common pitfalls, the common hiccups where people are stumbling, you know, in early sobriety? What are you seeing? What are people struggling with the most? I think probably if I like just answer that question without thinking, my gut answer is people relapse, reset, and don't change anything. So when I wrote a book about how to quit drinking, I created an appendix at the back where I challenged myself to write 60 sober tools, like things that you could do that would make it more likely that you'd be sober. And I rattled off 60 things all the way from go to bed early to inpatient rehab. The problem is that most people try to quit drinking with about four tools. And when they relapse, they start again with the same four tools. So probably the biggest lesson I've learned is you have to try different. If what you're trying isn't working, it's not try harder. It's try different. If you were Trying to get into law school, you didn't just send the le same letter to the same school every year. You'd go get some experience and try again. You'd go talk to somebody and try again. You'd try to apply to a different school. If you really wanted to be a lawyer, you wouldn't just stand outside the door of the dean's office and cry. And we approach quitting drinking unlike how we approach lots of other challenges in our lives. Like if you want to run a marathon, you get a book and then you join a group and then you get accountability and then you read about the right sneakers or runners, you don't just head out your front door, fall over at the corner, and then say, okay, tomorrow I'm just going to try harder. If you tried that with running a marathon, you'd fail. And if you try that with quitting drinking, you cycle around the first part over and over again, and that is like the most demoralizing. Like everybody listening to this know, has had some period of time in their life where they couldn't get any traction at all and didn't know why but didn't want to try it. It's not like every time they re relapsed, they added in new accountability supports tools. So, I mean, the, the biggest pitfall is um, 
resetting without changing things. Try harder. Yeah, and that's the common trajectory is once we fail, then the next time we'll add one more tool. And then for some, they'll add all 60 of the tools they mentioned when the first time they, they tried to quit though. drinking. Well, that's but the, they don't. Be, most people, some people do, some people don't. But I think if they're serious about this, they're going to continue to add things. That's what I did personally. But for me to answer that question is people are making conflicting statements internally. So they say, I want to quit drinking more than anything in my entire life. And that's quickly followed by a but, but I don't want to tell my boss, but I don't want to leave a book club. So internally, there's this fracture. There's a splintering in the psyche that's taking place. And the people that I've chatted with, when they focus more on the why, the how will always solve itself. Um, there's so many ways to answer this question. I love what you said. But it's the conflicting internal statements that I found personally with myself, too. I wanted to quit drinking so bad, but I didn't want to tell my brother. I didn't want to tell my fantasy football league, and I didn't want to make the personal change. I didn't want right. to become a new person. We've heard that phrase, which I think is over the top a little bit. You don't have to change much, but you have to change everything. You got to become a new person regardless. You have to become a new person. It's the old familiar chemicals of the old self that, that pull people back so much. So it's stepping into the unknown. And right now with COVID going on, the whole world has been given a heaping dose of the unknown. And me, you, Bell, and everybody else who's walked this path out of addiction, we already have experience with the unknown. And I feel like that's another big trip up is, is people are like tiptoeing in the unknown. They're pulling it out. Like, oh, that water's cold. No, thank you. I'd rather have the known, the misery, the shame, the regret, the 11 p.m. trips to the liquor store than a life without alcohol. So there's so many ways to answer that question, Bell. Yeah, I think also, though, I'm going to push back on the fact of whether or not you need to tell your brother. Because if there's 60 tools to be sober, and you can be sober with five tools, we'll never have the conversation again about the other 55. They're not required. Like, the thing that's required is to quit drinking. How you do it or who you tell, to me, is more dependent on are you successful at being sober. So, for example, if you don't want to tell your husband, but he's drinking in front of you, that's totally fine. Don't tell him. But if you're relapsing every two days, you're going to have to tell somebody. And then eventually you're going to have to tell him. It's sort of like me saying I didn't go to AA, but it was because I didn't relapse repeatedly. Had I relapsed repeatedly, I would have had to go to plan B and plan C and plan D. But I didn't tell my husband what I was doing for 19 days. Every night when he offered me wine, I said, no, thank you. Because I wasn't ready to share what I was doing because I didn't know what I was doing because I felt like a strong wind would knock me over. I felt fragile. I felt, um, I felt like I didn't have any language also. I couldn't even really describe it. But I didn't want any scrutiny. And then when we finally did talk about it, it was in a very surfacey kind of way. I'm going to not drink for a while. He said, well, maybe then you'll drink only on weekends when you start to drink again. I said, maybe, comma, but this is what I'm doing for now. And then that's it. Like I didn't make, in fact, I, I, I encourage people not to make large declarations because people hope that by making a large declaration, it motivates them to continue. And instead, it, it can make shame. I think that if you're comfortable with a large declaration, you should do it. And I think if you're comfortable saying, I'm never drinking again, you should do it. And I think if you're comfortable going to Facebook and you post all of it, you should do it. And I think if you don't want to do any of that, you don't have to, as long as you're sober. If you're not sober, you're going to have to look at all of it. Yeah, Bell, this is a good segue where we, we had somewhat of a disagreement before we hit the the record button where we didn't quite see eye to eye is, is so when we, when we, we first connected via Skype, I said, Hey, Bell, I started my video. Can you see me? He said, yeah. I was like, okay, go ahead and start your video. And, and, and Bell said, no. I was like, 
oh, okay. And I said, how Bell come? Bell did not say no. Oh, okay, okay. How, how did it go? I, I remember you saying, said, I, I won't do my video because I'm, I'm anonymous. anonymous. No, I didn't say I won't. I just said I'm anonymous, so okay. I don't do video. Well, thank you for correcting me on that. And <laughs> Make it sound so adversarial. Um, and I was, I was surprised. I was surprised. And there are exceptions to rules, but we have, I, I've, I've had a rule on this podcast where um, I've had people come on and say, hey, can we use a different name? And after the first 10 episodes, uh, there was like one in the first 10 that I used a different name. And after the first 10, I said, you know what? A big, a big goal of mine is to shred the shame. And I want you to use your name. And I've had, and some people are like, oh, I can't do the interview. I'm like, okay, best of luck. If you change your mind, come back to me. And, and so before we started this, A, I couldn't see you. And, and B, Belle loved the name. I'm not too sure if that, that is your name. And I was, and we were, I was like, you know, Belle, I don't think I can do this interview. And then I thought how many times that I've said on this podcast, there's no right or wrong way to depart from alcohol and there's no right or wrong way to create a project to assist in people's departure from alcohol. So quickly I was like, well, Belle, if, if you want to be anonymous with this, that's totally fine. But talk to us about the anonymity and, and, and how you are anonymous and you've been doing this for nine, nine years. Almost eight. It'll be eight in July. Okay. I personally wouldn't have been able to share the truth if I wasn't anonymous on day seven. Like on day seven, I needed to be anonymous because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I'm trying not to swear too much. I didn't know what I was doing. And like I said, I wasn't trying to help anybody. I was trying to keep myself from drowning. What I didn't realize, again, none of, the, none of this is intentional. What I didn't realize is that people would email me and say, I like it better that you're anonymous. It allows me to be anonymous. Or I like that you don't require me to tell my name. And again, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known, I would have had the exact same attitude that you have, which is surely this, we have to drop the shame. Surely we have to all stand up. And then I realized that in fact, I, I don't want to be the poster child for sobriety and the kind of sobriety that I model, which is different from every coach or every person on the internet. But the kind of sobriety that I model is you get sober and then you go on with the rest of your life. And it's the life that you build on top of being sober. It's not that then you become a sober coach or it's sort of like, you know what, if you have cancer, there's some people who have cancer and then they go on to become fundraisers and they go to talks and they work with patients and they become really invested in that. And then there's some people who have cancer and then they go back to law school. I was the second kind of person, but that doesn't mean that I even made a choice and I wasn't certainly valuing one more than the other. It's just the second one was who I was. So it was just the only version of me that I could present. Well, it turned out that that then resonated with some people. There's some people though for whom this is really their identity. And then there's some people for whom they're a judge and they get sober and then they go back to being a judge. And they don't talk about the fact that they're sober and they never bring it up and they don't go to conferences with their photo on Facebook. They just quietly go on with their life. And I wouldn't have thought ever that there was any place for that in the sober support world had it not been my lived experience and the and what was happening like right in front of me. Like, again, I didn't sit in a room and go, gee, I think my dif differentiating service will be an anonymity. But I do know that I hear from people that because we do coaching calls by phone and email, that they, I, they tell me stuff they've never told anybody that they don't tell their coach, that they don't tell their therapists, that they don't tell their counselors, that they don't tell their doctors, that they don't tell their husbands and wives. And so I think it puts me in a really privileged place, really, of having access now to 3,100 people where they're saying stuff they don't normally say. 
I do love the fact there are so many more entry points. Like we talked earlier, it was AA, basements, donuts, coffee, or treatment. Now you can enter on so many different aspects and you can even right. enter with a different name. You know, for us in, in Cafe RE, we don't allow fake names, but for others, it's there, there's no right way to do this. You can contact with Bell and you can enter at, at whatever pace you're comfortable with. The unknown is scary. And if you, if you need to be anonymous with it, then Hey, go for it. That is fantastic. I, I do feel that let me think how I say this. You know, we are on the same team, Bell, and I, I agree with what you're doing. But yeah, I, I feel that I do feel this movement almost needs that. that and I person. don't want to be in the movement. Yeah, I'm, yeah, and I'm not in the movement. Well, I I'm actually helping, disagree I'm with helping, that. I'm, I'm looking at your book called one. "Tired of Thinking yeah. About Drinking." I think if you want to be an influencer or not, or in the movement, you are. You've got a book well, available on Amazon, gonna, whether your name's Bell or not. If I, think, I was an influencer, my face would be on Instagram and I'd be posting seven memes a day. Um, well, in I'm my opinion, with- Belle is an influencer. I don't know okay. how to get around that. You've got a book and it's okay. a great book. It's got great reviews. Let's talk about the book for a second. Sure. I wrote the book because I was asked to by subscribers. I was writing daily emails. I was posting on the blog daily for the first year. Uh, I didn't think I had anything to say that anybody, like I'd already said it all. What, what could I possibly put in a book? It didn't occur to me that once I, I didn't realize this, that once you say something once, it doesn't like stay there forever. You need to <laughs> say it more than once. And but also I've realized this now from working with people one on one is that you need to hear it when you need to hear it. And hearing this, the right information at the wrong time is still the wrong information. Do you think there will be a day, Bell, when you walk outside your apartment in Paris and people will say, oh, there's there's Bell. She's sober. She doesn't drink. Or you're going to be you're going to say, hey, this is me, everybody. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I can't imagine what would happen to cause that. Um, I think that said, if, you know, if Oprah calls and wants me to go on television and talk about working anonymously with 3000 people, yeah, okay. I would probably do that. But am I looking around for ways to, 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 to walk around and wave my hand? No, but also like my catering clients don't know that I do this work. Some of my friends do, some of them don't. What if you had a catering client that was struggling with alcohol or, or a catering employee? Would you open up to him about him? Yeah, yes. But again, it's people who ask specifically. Like there's different kinds of people asking questions of a sober person. Sure. There's sure. people who go, you don't drink? Why not? What's the matter? That I mean, that person, I just shut them down with a very generic answer. But if somebody comes up to me very carefully and puts their hand on my hand and says, you quit, was it hard? then I know what they're asking. They're asking me if I think that they could do it too. And then I answer the question and I say, it was hard. It turned out to be totally worth it. But then that's the end of the sentence. If they then ask, how did you do it? Where did you go? What were your resources? Then I would say there's a lot of stuff online. Have you looked? No, I was just going to say that I don't, again, I'm I'm not making large declarations. I try to tell, I try to answer the question that I'm being asked without proselytizing and without assuming that I know what it is that they want, I'll answer the question that they ask. So somebody says, my husband is an ass. We'll, first, we'll differentiate, is he really an ass, or are you sensitive because you're in the first seven days sober? Hmm. All right. right? And then we'll talk about your husband's assholicness later. Because first, you've got to be sober before you can deal with that, right? <laughs> Bell, before we hit the rapid fire round... I want to let listeners know where they can find more information about your Sober Jumpstart class, 100-Day Challenge, Sober Jewelry, and even maybe even a personal call with you, Bill. Uh, it's all on the website. If you go to tiredofthinkingaboutdrinking.com, 
you sign up there for the free daily emails. It's kind of weird, but I actually send out one to three emails a day with tips and tricks and ideas. And I share bits and pieces from other pen pal emails that have, so that it's not all my story. I'll share what Lucy did and I'll share what Angela did or I'll share and including good stories and hard stories. My stuff is not all sunshine and light, but it isn't all drunkalogue either. I try to get the, that balance right. But I have a podcast. It's You can find that on the website too. I do have sober jewelry. It's on the website. I do coaching calls. The sober jumpstart class is just the fancy name for the one-on-one pen palling that I do. And when I say that there's 3,000 people, I don't mean that I'm emailing 3,000 people at a time. That's how many people since 2012. Sometimes people are like, oh my God, how do you answer? It's like, I don't. I mean, of course I don't. I answer, you know, 50 or 60 people at a time. Sure. Sure, sure. Okay, number one, rapid fire round. What is a oh. light bulb moment you've had on this journey, Bell? Uh, that I'm not alone. And that most people have almost ex- very identical experiences, whether they're married or single or male or female or drank two bottles or drank two glasses. That the experience is very, very similar. There's no way I would have known that. And what's your favorite alcohol free drink? Tonic. Tonic. <laughs> just because I like bitter things. So I would say just tonic or grapefruit and tonic. The other day I had tonic ice cubes and fresh peaches. Delicious. That sounds pretty good. Tonic oh. ice cubes. Okay. It was good. delicious. Good. All right. What are some of your favorite resources approaching nine years away from alcohol? No, eight. Eight. Sorry. Keep <laughs> looking at the website you know, my notepad. I know. I have a, but I have a weird relationship with resources because I get so many emails every day that my resources are my subscribers. What, what I learn, I learn from my subscribers. What I, they, they, they share links with me of things that are important to them, which then, then I go read. But if, I want, if I'm looking for like a topic to talk about, my inbox is full of it. Like right this minute when we're in a time of world global pandemic – we talk a lot about self-care and anxiety because that's the things that people, and also how do you juggle your sobriety and homeschooling? How do you juggle the fact that you're used to going to work and now you're at home? Do you treat this as at home rehab, quote unquote, or is it an excuse to drink all night and sit on the couch for two months? My resources are the emails. Like we just had a long weekend when at the time of this recording, there was a long weekend just a few days ago. And I came back on Monday to 1100 emails. There'll be no shortage of topics, content, issues, ideas, things to share, things to talk about. And I will have been shared. If something's big, like in the New York Times or whatever, some, uh, seven people will share it with me. Yeah, I, 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 I've experienced the same. <laughs> and what's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life, Bell? I'd actually like to own a bakery. I've been a caterer and I worked selling food directly to people. And I've done some like private cooking for people stuff. And I'd actually like to have a storefront. And I realized that I started calling it my sober bakery, but I realized that I couldn't have done any of that had I was if I was still drinking because I found it very difficult to get up at five o'clock in the morning to make bread if I had been drinking the night before. So I sort of know that I got sober so that I could pursue this food thing. So my next sort of goal would be to have a bakery. Will you serve French onion soup? It's possible because uh, French stuff is very kitschy, depending on which country I'm in, of course. If I'm in France, then no. If I'm in France, I would serve American stuff because it's something I know. If I was in America, I'd serve French stuff Hmm. to create something differentiating. Uh, French onion soup. Well, you know what? It's a good way to use up yesterday's bread. Mm, There we go. So, you know, creative-wise, like I have to develop catering recipes that use up leftover alcohol because I don't drink. And so when I serve an event and there's alcohol left over, I've developed recipes that use it all up so that I can lower my costs and be creative and because I don't drink any. 
And Bell, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? Uh, it's in the act of reaching out that things change. That people think that if they, uh, they're waiting for something to come to them, they're waiting to read the right book, they're waiting to be moved, they're waiting to have a click. Uh, from what I see, and even when I set up pen palling with somebody, it's when they email me that things change. It's in the reaching out uh, with no expectation that you're going to get an answer right away, with no expectation that I'm a genius. It's you reaching out. That's what changes things. When you tell like, I think there should be somebody on the planet, one person who knows the whole story. Sometimes that's easier in an anonymous environment, but you should have one person. Groups are great, especially for like the camaraderie of people having shared experience. But I think that you should have one person who knows all of it because there's something very, very freeing in that. Bell, when I get a long email, I'm talking like two to 3,000 words, almost mm -hmm. always at the end. It's the person says, wow, that was therapeutic. It, I feel better right. now simply have right. written it. It doesn't matter yep. if, if, and I can't respond to all the emails like you can't, but simply <laughs> it's like an anonymous or, or just a, a listener. They'll just, yeah. they'll just, they'll like start to write a couple paragraphs and all of a sudden it's four to 5,000 words long. And they're like, wow, it felt so good to release that energy inside via keystrokes to yep. somebody. Yep. yep. And I do reply to all the emails. Um, I have an apprentice who helps me on weekends. But I do answer the emails and I do read them all. And I do have a separate email account set up for people to email stuff without the expectation of a reply. Like wow. I have a no reply email mm -hmm. um, for some people who have like graduated out of the program who don't need me to email them every day, but still want to still want the reaching out part. Hmm. And before we depart, Bell, give listeners your own. You might need to ditch the booze if line. Well, the funniest thing happened in January on my Facebook page. Somebody showed up and said, if you got to quit drinking for a hundred days, you've got a problem. And my comment underneath was, if you can't quit drinking for a hundred days, you've got a problem. So when people say to me, do you think I have a problem with drinking? My answer is, have you tried to quit? Because in trying to quit, you'll be told soon enough whether or not you have a problem. Yeah. Back it up even further. If you're thinking about quitting drinking or thinking if you have a drinking problem, uh, answer might be in the question. Right. Bell. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad we moved forward with this interview. You are doing fantastic stuff. Again, it's tiredofthinkingaboutdrinking.com. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Nice to be here. Hey, everyone. Don't miss next week. I got a bombshell for you. Exciting times ahead. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys.